Acts 22, 1 through 16. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters for them, from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of whom was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray now that as we look at your word, you would show us the brilliance and the glory of Christ, that we might reflect it to others and have our lives changed by it as well. We ask in his holy name. Amen. Okay, that, that special effect was not planned, but you never know what's going to happen. So we're looking at the testimony of the Apostle Paul. You know, testimonies are a big part of a lot of people's Christian life, a big part of how we can share what Jesus means to us. And perhaps the most famous testimony of all is Paul's conversion testimony. You know, Luke, in the book of Acts, is a very efficient and intentional writer. But one of the things that's interesting in the book of Acts is he actually repeats himself three times in sharing this story of Paul's conversion. It appears in the narrative of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 9, and then here in Acts chapter 22 when Paul shares his testimony to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and then in Acts chapter 26 as well. So this is an important story. One of the remarkable things is how, how similar these three accounts are. It's just that Paul wanted to re, or excuse me, Luke wanted to reiterate the importance of this story to understanding how God was working through Paul to establish his church. And I, I think one of the great things about testimonies and, and your own personal testimony of what your faith means to you is you can share it with anybody and they can't really disagree with it because it's your testimony. 
Uh, you know, they might disagree with your worldview, they might disagree with your ethics, they might disagree with your philosophy, but nobody can really disagree with your personal testimony because it belongs to you. So it's one of the most effective witnessing tools that you have and something you probably might become comfortable with sharing with others because it's your story. And, you know, Paul, Paul's testimony, I think, is interesting for all of us because it's, it's intense. You know, Paul was a pretty, Paul the Apostle was a pretty intense guy. And so he gets it all at once. In one moment, he gets this great vision of Jesus that he, that he shares with everybody else. But I think there's aspects of this, although all of our testimonies are unique, there's aspects of this that will be, uh, consistent or that we'll all share with the Apostle Paul and with other Christians. And so, so even if your experience isn't quite as intense and you don't hear, uh, you don't see a blinding light, you don't hear deafening feedback in the midst of the, uh, your, your revelation of Jesus, in that moment you might, you'll, you'll find that you have a lot in common with Paul. And so I want to point out three things about his testimony. The first is that Paul, when he saw Jesus, he had to repent of his sin and he had to repent of his religion and his righteousness. You know, Paul, this testimony happens, or his conversion happens when he's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to do what? To lock up Christians, to kill Christians. He had just left Jerusalem where he had orchestrated the execution, the summary execution of Stephen, one of the deacons, and now he's going to Damascus to do the same. He's intent on eradicating this movement before it even get started. And there, as he's on his way to arrest these Christians, he, he gets knocked down and he hears a voice. And what does the voice say to him? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul realizes that he's actually much worse than he ever imagined, that his sin is much graver than he ever imagined. Because he's not just persecuting Christians, which is wrong enough, but in persecuting Christians, he's He's persecuting his Messiah and the Son of God. Paul recognizes in that moment that his sin is much more serious than he ever would have imagined beforehand. And for all of us, I think, you know, we look at our lives and, and one of the great things about living in community is you can always find somebody who's worse than you, right? No matter what you've done, no matter where you're at, you can always find someone to look down on. But you don't understand your sin you don't understand what it means to be a sinner until you understand that your sin really is not against the various people who might be inconvenienced by your immorality. Your sin is really against God himself and against the Savior who died for you. And when you begin to understand that, that's when your sin will start to break you. So Paul has this, this experience where he realizes that he's more flawed, he's more guilty, he's more broken than he was ever able to imagine. But he doesn't just have to face his sin and recognize his sin, he has to repent of his righteousness as well. What was it that drove Paul to go from Jerusalem to Damascus to eradicate Christians? He says in this passage, he was zealous for God. He was doing it because he thought he was doing God's work. He was doing it because that's how he understood the, the work of God to be to be accomplished in his day and his age. And so Paul was pursuing personal righteousness. Paul was trying to do the right thing. Paul believed he was doing the right thing, even though the right thing involved persecuting other people. And 
And so he didn't just have to repent of his sin, he had to repent of his righteousness. And I think that, that's important. I mean, when you happen to be speaking to people who got up on Sunday morning and uh, got all dressed up and came to church and helped with ushering and helped with taking care of the kids and sang the songs and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, probably in a lot of ways we're feeling comfortable with the good things that we're doing for God today. And and we, we have a lot of things that we can point to as ways we're serving God and ways we're, we're seeking to do good for his community. But really what we've got to recognize when we see Jesus is it's not just our bad works, not just our flaws, not just our guilt that's keeping us from experiencing his glory and his grace. It's also our good works and our righteousness and our good deeds that sometimes create a barrier between us and God because we trust in them rather than trusting in his grace. And you know, I, I know if you're when you're in the Christian community, one of the great things to hear sometimes is, is these amazing testimonies of redeemed lives about people who were in prison, people who were addicted, people who were involved in all kinds of nefarious activities, and then Jesus comes to them and they get saved, and now they're traveling the world as evangelists or whatever it might be. But you know what I also like to hear? What's important to me is testimonies of church ladies and deacons and occasionally even pastors who come to grips with the fact that all that they did was done for the wrong motives and in the wrong way and for many years kept them from experiencing God's love and kept them from showing God's love until something happened and his grace broke through. I believe as we walk with God, as we seek God, sometimes the biggest thing that's keeping you from experiencing his grace and his love is not your bad deeds, but your good deeds, not your self-indulgence, but your attempts to serve him. And those are the things we've got to let go of so we can trust in Christ and in Christ alone. So Paul repents of his sin even as he repents of his righteousness when he sees Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is when he sees Jesus, he experiences glory and he experiences grace at a level that he never thought possible. Paul's in a rage as he travels to Damascus. He's breathing out murderous threats. Luke tells us he's he's anticipating going to Damascus and locking people up, maybe getting some people killed. He had just incited a mob to murder Stephen. So the guy is on a roll. The guy is on a mission. He has blood streaming out of his eyes. He has blood on his hands. And he is going to do what he thinks is God's work. And he's leading a group of people who's going to do this. He's an ambitious guy. He's a powerful guy. He's a guy who's going to accomplish what he set out to do. And all of a sudden, a bright light appears to him, and he's knocked flat on his back. And all of a sudden, he finds himself blind, and he has a vo hears a voice say, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He comes as powerful as he was, as driven as he was, as strong as he was. He comes up against a force that knocked him down and that flattened him and that utterly broke him. And for all of us in life, as we go through life, especially when we're trying to get in control of our lives and get in control of our careers and get in control of our relationships and get in control of our future, the stronger we are, the more in control we are, the more certain it is that soon 
God is going to knock us flat on our back. And Paul goes from leading the charge, leading his band of men into Damascus where he's going to arrest and, and persecute all these Christians to needing to be led by the hand because he's broken and he's blinded and he doesn't know which end is up anymore. And God does that to us. Sometimes Jesus has to do that to us because that's the only way he's going to get our attention. Otherwise, we'll just continue on our merry way, destroying lives and making a mess everywhere we go until he reveals his glory to us, until he breaks us down, until he knocks us on our back and we submit to being led by the hand for a while. So Paul sees God's glory and all of a sudden he recognizes he's not as great, he's not as powerful, he's not as strong as he thought he was going to be, but at the same time, he sees God's grace. Paul is going to Damascus to persecute Christians and the voice comes down from heaven, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul could have responded, I'm not persecuting you, I'm going to go get these believers in you. But Jesus so identified with believers that to hurt the believers was to hurt him, to persecute the believers was to persecute him. Jesus had that intimate a connection with the believers and so to attack the church was to attack Christ himself in the mind and in the heart of Christ. So I ask you, what ought Paul to have expected at this point? Here he is going to eradicate the church. Here he is going to destroy the church and the defender of the church appears to him and knocks him down. I think it would have been reasonable for him to expect, it would have been reasonable for Jesus at that point to step up and defend the church by squishing Paul like a bug, don't you think? If the story of Acts was that Paul murdered Stephen and set out for Damascus to arrest the Christians, and on the way he was consumed by a fireball, that would be a reasonable narrative, right? But that's not what happens. Jesus doesn't crush Paul. Jesus doesn't obliterate Paul. Jesus doesn't have Paul struck by lightning or consumed in a ball of fire. Jesus said, Paul, I've got a place for you in my kingdom. I need you to come serve me. So go to Damascus. I'm going to send one of my servants. He's going to explain to you what's up, and we're going to give you a job in the church. So Paul not only experienced Jesus' glory, he experienced Jesus' grace in a way that boggled his mind. I mean, imagine that, that Jesus let him live. Here, he was in a place where he would kill any Christians he, he could. He just killed Stephen. And yet, Jesus not only stops him, but spares his life and calls him into ministry. Jesus saved Paul's life because you know the story of Paul, the apostle. Jesus had work for him to do. And that's the third point. So, so just to, to review, when we meet Christ, we have to repent of our sin and of our righteousness. We experience his glory, which knocks us down, and his grace, which picks us back up. And finally, we realize and we experience God's call and a new connection. God comes to Paul through Ananias and says, Paul, I've got a job for you to do. You're going to be my witness. You're going to found the church. You're going to be the one who articulates the faith. You know, God 
anoints Paul so that he ends up being the writer of about a third of the New Testament. You think about it, the way we think about Christianity today, the way we understand the gospel and the work of Christ today is largely influenced by the portion of the New Testament that Paul wrote. About one-third of the New Testament was written by Paul for us. So God places this call on Paul, and, and you, you know, you think about it, who was a more unlikely witness? If you read the book of, of Acts, one of the things, you see, one of the problems Paul had early on is he was so notorious for having executed Stephen, he was so notorious for leading the charge and the persecution of the Christians, that when he flipped and became a Christian, all the people in the church were like, no, no, keep that guy away from us. He's just trying to infiltrate us. He's just trying to spy on us so that he can find out, so, so he can put our names on a list and, and devastate us. I mean, who was a more unlikely witness to the gospel than the person who had orchestrated the martyr of the first of the, the murder of the first Christian martyr, then Paul. And yet God uses him, not in spite of that, but because of that. God said, this guy is perfect to show that salvation is by grace alone. This guy is perfect to show that salvation is by a sovereign election alone. God, this guy is perfect to show the depths of forgiveness. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I was once a persecutor and a violent man, but because of that, God's grace was shown to me. I mean, the life of Paul, who better to show the power of God's grace than a persecutor who becomes the chief preacher of the gospel? And so God took the very things that should have disqualified Paul and used them as the basis for God's call on his life. And I think there, there's a lesson there for each of you as you think about how God might want to use you and what God's plan is or what God's call is on your life. I think sometimes we want to look at our strengths, we want to look at our abilities, we want to look at look at the, the, the uh, most powerful parts of our life, but I think sometimes you really want to see God's where God's going to use you or how God's going to use you. Look at your weaknesses. Look at your deepest failures. Look at your greatest struggles. And those are the places where you've experienced God's grace. Those are the places where God's mercy has touched you, perhaps. And those are the places where you can show other people God's mercy. See, Paul, nobody was more disqualified, nobody was more unlikely to become the leader of the first century church and, and the most important uh, the most important propagator of the Christian faith and articulator of the faith than Paul, but because of that, because of his background, he was uniquely qualified to do that because he was willing to lean into that. You know, he could never, he could never pretend to be anything other than he was. As he went through the church, everybody knew it was part of the record. Everybody knew that he was the person who orchestrated the martyrdom of Stephen. Everybody knew that he was the leader who had caused the great persecution to break out that scattered the, the church from Jerusalem to the four corners of the earth. Everybody knew that about him. And so through him, everybody knew that God's grace was much greater than anything 
they can imagine. And so God not only stops Paul, but God places a call on his life by using his greatest weakness, his, his, his greatest shame, his greatest regret as the leverage for the great, great message of God's amazing grace. In your life, God's going to use your greatest weakness, your greatest regret, your greatest shame as leverage for his grace in you as well. So lean into those things and ask God to show his grace to you in those areas so that you can show grace to others. And finally, perhaps most importantly, what what is articulated here by Jesus in his in his confrontation of Paul is the seed of the heart of Paul's theology. Paul, Paul, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that line, we hear Christ's intimate connection with his church. Christ's intimate connection with each of his Christians. How Christ feels pain and how Christ feels sorrow every time one of his children suffers. Every time one of, one of a member of his church is hurt because Christ is that connected to his church. This is actually the seed of the heart of Paul's doctrine. You know, the, if you had to sum up the gospel of, according to Paul in, in one sentence, you might put it this way. It's all about union with Christ, being united with Christ. So that's why Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me when, when Paul was persecuting the church, not Jesus himself? That's why Paul, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, refers to the church as the body of Christ. That's why throughout Paul's writings, he talks about being a Christian as being in Christ or united with Christ, because there's a connection that Jesus offers to us which is the heart of what we long for and is the essence of our salvation. See, in all of our hearts, in all of our lives, I believe one of the things that drives us more than anything is the desire not to be alone, not to have to stand alone, but to be connected to something great, to be connected to something powerful, to be connected to wealth, to be connected to glory, to be connected to honor, to be connected to love, to be connected to goodness however we might be able to find that. We seek that in everything we seek. We're really seeking those connections, whether it's through our relationships and through family. We're seeking that connection to beauty. We're seeking that connection to strength in the companies we we join and in the politicians we support, even in the athletes or the teams that we get behind. In everything, what we need are connections that are significant, connections that are weighty, connections that matter. On the other hand, the thing we want to avoid is connections to things that are broken, connections to people who are guilty. You never notice someone gets in trouble at work and then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh no, I don't, I don't do anything with that guy. You know, we, we want to avoid connections to, that will do us harm. The story of Jesus he had all those connections. He was in a perfect relationship with his father. He lived in peace and in safety in heaven. He was holy 
and righteous and flawless. And he had eternal love that he shared with his father. But he was so desirous of reconciliation with you, so desirous of a connection with you, that he was able to do what's unthinkable. He was able, he was willing to lay aside his beauty and his glory and become one who was despised and rejected. Even though he was all-powerful, he was willing to share in your weakness and your brokenness. Even though he was immortal, he was willing to suffer and to die. Even though he was holy and righteous, he was willing to become sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Even though he was God's eternal beloved son, he was willing to be forsaken that you might be accepted. He did it all so that you could be connected to him for all eternity. He loved you that much. His connection to you was that important. At the end of the day, Paul's testimony can be summed up simply this way. He realized in that moment, he expressed for the rest of his life the most important thing was that he was the beloved of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace of Christ towards Paul that you made him such a powerful witness of your truth and your mercy. I pray that you would enable each one of us to experience that power and glory as well. We ask in his holy name. Amen.